If you have a Bible with you, I would ask for you to open it to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, the very beginning of chapter 5, we'll be reading soon through the first 11 verses of that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you and you happen to be sitting in this particular room, you can find those black ESV Bibles, uh, hopefully in the seats in front of you. And First. Uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 can be found on page 978 of that Bible. Some 75 years ago on August 6th, uh, America dropped a bomb called Little Man on Hiroshima. And even today, exactly 75 years ago, we dropped a bomb named Fat Boy on Nagasaki. These bombs obliterated both cities, and they have and still thankfully stand as the only time that atomic weapons have been used in, uh, in war. Now, they provided an incredible amount of destruction. They basically reduced both cities to nothing more than rubble. And these actions have had a number of repercussions, but their subsequent destruction fueled both consternation and consideration in the secular world and a passion to imagine what life was like at the end of the world. They were fascinated by this. Authors became fascinated by this. Novelists became fascinated by the kind of devastation that was left after these bombs dropped and imagining what it would be like to live in a world like that, this sort of dystopian, apocalyptic world. And so we've seen science fiction books and other works of fiction that have come out of the years after this, whether it's The Stand by Stephen King or The Road uh, by Cormac McCarthy, or even sci-fi books like I Am Legend dealing with other types of disaster have built up over time. We have movies and TV shows based off of all of this. And it's not all due to the fact that we dropped these bombs, but certainly they helped fuel the imagination for these things. The world does have a fascination with life after the end of the world, so to speak. Christians, too, have a fascination with this. Our fascination doesn't revolve necessarily about how we make it after the end of the world, but what is it like when Christ returns? And we are no less fanatic about thinking about this than the world is about their zombies. An entire cottage industry has unfortunately been produced out of people who want to predict when Christ will return to any number of period of accuracy. Especially interesting is somebody like Harold Camping, who some of you remember the name of from several years ago. Some of you remember the name of him from 1994, because in 94, he predicted the return of Christ in that year. And lo and behold, he was wrong. That didn't stop him from doing it again. He waited until 2011. And then he said, on March 21st of 2011, Jesus Christ was going to return. He was again wrong, as you may have guessed. But alas, he is not the only one to do this. The Watchtower Society of the Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted in various forms and various fashions the return of Jesus Christ in 1878, in 1881, in 1914, in 1918, in 1925, and in 1975. They're not alone. People love to talk about the return of Jesus and the apocalypse that will come with it. Now, some of this is fine. It's simply an extension of our own curiosity. We want to know how we are going to handle the apocalypse. What will it be like for people in the church? What will it be like for people outside of the church? What is it going to be like? When will it happen? Where will it happen? And these aren't necessarily bad questions to ask. But we must realize, and this is important, that we are not the first to ask these questions. 
Now, these questions didn't arise with World War I or World War II or the dropping of bombs or viruses that covered the globe. They didn't start with zombie movies or anything of the like. It started 2,000 years ago when Jesus talked to his disciples about his return. We must realize that these questions have been asked before and therefore answers have indeed been given to us. But as God has provided answers for us, those answers are not always the answers we want, but they are quite often and always they are the answers that we need. So what must we actually know and how should we actually live to persevere until the end of the age? Let us read then from 1 Thessalonians 5 as Paul addresses these very issues. There in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of our Lord. What must we actually know and how should we live to persevere unto the end of the age? The first thing I would tell you, friends, is to fight all apathy. Fight all apathy. It is important to realize that this small passage is a packing in of the same kind of information and the same kind of teaching you would find in something like Matthew 24 and 25, which means that what Paul was providing to the Thessalonians was probably not of his own making. It wasn't a revelation that came to him, but it was something that Jesus readily taught and was available to teach. And not only that, but the very fact that he comes to them and says, you have no need for anything to be written to you, means that this is information that's been passed on to them before. So that in the short time that Paul was there, he got around to teaching about the coming and the return of the Lord. This is not something we think of as primary fodder for preaching and teaching new people, but apparently Paul did. And so he knows that they know about this. These these are foundational teachings, something that we all ought to understand and know. And the first thing that you get out of this is that the times and the seasons are not to be known with exactness. Paul doesn't say, well, you know that we told you the Lord was going to return in A.D. 99, or he was going to return 2,000 years from now, so you don't have to worry about it. That's not what he says at all. But indeed, in the whole passage, he makes it seem like the Lord's return is here and now. It's present. It's, it's possible at any moment in time. The whole idea of pinning down a time is something of, I don't know, it never occurred to Paul. And it didn't occur to Paul because the teaching of Jesus made it clear. 
Again, these questions had been asked before. And every time these questions of Jesus' return are brought up in the Bible, do you know what they say? They don't tell you a time. They don't tell you a season. They don't tell you an exact date. Jesus goes out of his way in Mark 13, 32 to say, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. No one knows. Who's the no one, Jesus? Well, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So it is incredibly perplexing to me that people who claim to know the Bible so well, who have plumbed the depths of its teaching, who have calculated its meaning, who have discovered its hidden secrets, are not wise enough to read the plain text that's in front of them where Jesus says, no one knows. Well, I know he said that, but I know. No, you don't know. Such people are never to be thought of as faithful teachers because they can't read the plain text. We shouldn't ever expect them to be able to read the deeper text of Scripture. We are right, therefore, to say that the Lord's return is imminent. What we mean by that is not that it's going to happen today, but it means that it could happen today. It is always at hand. We don't know when it is, so it is imminent. It's, it's always right around the corner, no matter how far we might be from the corner. We don't know when it's going to be, so we have to act like it's now. Listen to how Psalm 2 ends, all the way back in Psalm 2. We get the same kind of idea. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. When it says his wrath is quickly kindled, it doesn't mean that Jesus has a short fuse. What it means is that in a blink of an eye, in a moment, his wrath is upon you. It is imminent. It is always present and at hand. Even though he is tarrying, even though he is waiting, it could be any moment. So about the times and the seasons, brother, you have no reason for anything to be written to you, but you are aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord is not just the day that Jesus returns. It's got a, a much larger backstory than that. It is the day that Jesus returns, but it is a day of wrath, a day of recompense. It is a day when the Lord God will come himself and set the world to rights. He will do what his justice requires, and he will demonstrate that he is doing what his justice has said it will do. People will receive from the Lord according to their deeds a just payment. For those who are good, good. For those who are wicked, evil and destruction. This is, as the church has long known, a difference between the first coming and the second coming of our Lord. In the first coming, he comes to bring salvation. So you can go back into the book of John and say, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. He wasn't in, sent into the world for his first coming in order to condemn it, but rather to provide salvation for it. And he comes, therefore, like a lamb. Behold, John would say, the lamb of the world who takes away its sin. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But his second coming is not like that. His second coming is not as a lamb. His second coming is as a lion. And it is for judgment. And again, Matthew 25 is helpful here. But other passages speak of the devastation that the coming of the Lord will have in this day of the Lord. You can look this up in various passages. Joel 2 is a good one, but we'll stop in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. And listen to how happy Zephaniah makes this day sound. The great day of the Lord is near, near 
and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against fortified cities and against lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. It's pretty. It's upbeat and happy. Or it's dark and dismal and upsetting. And Zechariah, or Zephaniah wants it to be that way. The day of the Lord is not to be pictured as some sort of glorious day for the vast majority of the world. It is a coming destruction. The patience of the Lord has come to an end and he has come to make his justice known. This day is going to come, it says, like a thief in the night. And of course, thieves come at night. Why do thieves come at night? It's when people are least prepared to deal with intruders. You're sleepy, you're groggy, you don't know what's going on. You're not walking up, you're not walking around and able to see them. It's dark. They can get away with more. They can surprise you. You are just simply not prepared. And that's the whole point of saying that he's going to come like a thief in the night. It's honestly a very odd way to describe Jesus because Jesus here is being described as though he's a thief, although he's not. He's not taking anything that doesn't belong to him. It's simply a comparison about the way in which we are unprepared for the coming of the Lord. Those who are outside will experience this like a thief in the night. They will be found unprepared. And this is precisely what night throughout all of this passage is symbolizing in darkness. It is for people who live in a way that doesn't account for the coming judgment of God. Time and time again when it talks like this, it makes it seem like these people are wholly unprepared for what's going to happen. They don't realize what's coming to them. We read in Psalm 14 that a fool says in his heart there is no God. And oftentimes what we think is that people who say there is no God are fools. But I don't think that's quite what it means. What it means is when you live like you're a fool, you are living like you don't believe that there is a God. And this is exactly what these kind of people are like. They're living as though the day of the Lord is not coming. They're living as though they can get away with the things that they are doing. This is how most of the world seems like they will experience the day of the Lord. They will be wholly unprepared for the devastation that is coming to them. The second metaphor takes this and changes it a little bit. Here Paul talks about labor pains. We've had this pictured for us in a different way in John 16 where the disciples are going to experience something like labor pains when Jesus disappears for a while, but then it's like the joy of having that child being given back to them. As Jesus will return to them, they will have their sorrow lifted and they will be joy-filled. But here there is no mention of birth. There is no mention of the joy that comes after the sorrow. Here there is only pain and destruction. Once a woman is with child, there is one thing that is assured for her, one thing, especially in those days, pain and distress. We have every expectation now that when women go into birth and they start having labor pains, that they will pull through. It is an odd moment when a woman dies in childbirth today, but it wasn't then. They're asking for peace and security 
but they won't get it. The idea of labor pains here is that it is inescapable and unavoidable. That once a woman finds out that she is pregnant, there is no epidural for her then. There is only guaranteed for her not joy at the birth of her child, not joy that she went through it. Only, only promise to her is pain and distress. And that is exactly what is happening to these people. Because they are unaware of the return of the Lord. Because they don't take into account of it. Not only will they be unprepared, but they cannot escape the devastation and the destruction that is to come. Now it's interesting, if Paul says that they don't have any need to be told of these things, why he is going on about telling them these things. He says, I don't, you don't need me to talk to you about this, but here, let me talk to you about this for a second anyway. There's a good reason for this. Friends, we need warnings like this. Most of us don't live in light of the future. If we live in light of the future, it's because we're putting away money or we're thinking about our careers. We don't live honestly in light of the fact that the judge is standing at the door. When was the last time you did something and you honestly thought to yourself, Jesus will judge me for what I'm about to do, good or bad? When was the last time that you had those kinds of thoughts run through your head? Yeah, we long for peace and security, but rarely do we live in light of the fact that Jesus is going to come and live in such a way that we are prepared for it. It's easy to become apathetic. It's easy to... to, to go through day after day after day, realizing that each day, one after the next, is the same, and to lose sight of the fact that Jesus can return at any moment and to stop caring about his return at any moment. Sometimes we think all we need is for Jesus' name to pass our lips every so often and we'll be fine, or that our good works, our good looks, our good nature will get us by. We are so terribly light and breezy when it comes to this day but Paul cannot have the Thessalonians be like that. So he warns them, it is not a day to be taken lightly. Amos 5, 18 through 20 points directly at the problem of this apathy. These people who are Jews in, in Amos's day think that they, because they're Jews, are going to pass through the, the day of the Lord without any sort of trouble. They are expecting the day of the Lord. They want the day of the Lord to come because they think we're okay. We are God's people. And Amos says this, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? That is, these people thought the day of the Lord was good for them. And Amos is warning them, No, your complacency and your sin makes it a day of evil for you. It is tough, friends, to not be apathetic about it. Second Peter warns us as well that even at the end, middle to end of the first century, that people were already clamoring about the return of the Lord. Incredibly important is this passage because we stand 2,000 years almost after that. And Peter says, they will say, these scoffers in the last day will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. Every day you wake up, it's the same. Every day you go to night, you go to bed every night, it's the same. Day after day after day, nothing changes. And Peter warns us, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the, the Lord one day is as a thousand years. What a beautiful help that passage is for us. Two thousand years have passed. 
It seems like such a long time. What is God waiting for? Why hasn't he come back? And it makes us kind of stagger to think that maybe we got it wrong. Peter says it's like a day to the Lord. It's not even, not even 48 hours later for him. A thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, our apathy comes easy to us, so we need to be warned to not be apathetic about the coming of the Lord. We need to act and always live as though he is coming and soon to come. You can fight this then, secondly, by knowing your identity. Friends, know your identity. In verses 4 and 5, we read this. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. That brothers there should be brothers and sisters. All these brothers should be brothers and sisters. Siblings, you are not unaware for that day to surprise you like a thief because you don't live in the darkness. You are children of light. If darkness was living in such a way that you don't account for the judgment of the Lord, then being in the light means that you do live in a way that accounts for the judgment of the Lord. That we, because we are people of the light, live like we are people of the light. This is a normal metaphor for describing the children of God, that we are children of light. In John 12, 36, Jesus says, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become children or sons of the light. In Ephesians 5, Paul says the same thing. At one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Listen, this means that not that we're related to the light genetically. We always think of fathers and sons or of children to their parents genetically now because we've been so programmed, but that's not how the Bible thinks of children. Children are children because they act like their parents. They, they, don't, they don't move far from the characteristic of their parents. So Jesus is ultimately the son of God, in, even within the Trinity, not because he has his father's genes. God doesn't have genes. It's because he does everything that the Father does. He is the exact imprint and radiance of the Father. He does everything the Father does. That is what it means to be a son. That's what it means to be a child. So if you are the child of light, you ought to live like you're in the light. Even as we read this morning, my bride read, the bride says, come. The bride is always ready for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is also a beckoning to the world, but this is a call, just a, a normal way of which the, the people of God await the coming of Jesus Christ. It is our identity. We await for his return. And in verses 9 through 10, Paul expresses the exact same thoughts. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath. That is not who we are. Notice it's God destining us. He says, He hasn't destined us who believe for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, or excuse me, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. God has not destined you, believer, for wrath. This day of the Lord might be gloom for the rest of the world, but it ought not be for you. It is a day of joy and jubilee for us, for it presents the day when in finality and in fullness and forever the kingdom of God is made known. Rather, 
we have obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. Just as we talked of last week, we have been unified with Christ. We are in union with him. So as Jesus has died and risen again, so we have already died and risen again. Our destruction and our devastation and our death, which is the day of the Lord coming for the world, has already been paid. We have already gone under, as it were, the day of the Lord. And so now what we get is nothing but salvation. This is exactly what Paul was getting at in verse 10 of the first chapter when he says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. The wrath to come is the day of the Lord, but he has already delivered you. If you trust in him, if you believe in him, if you have placed your life in him, if God has called you and visited you with grace, moved you in your heart to believe and to trust in Jesus Christ, you are spelled from the destruction that is to come so that we might live with him not just to enjoy his presence, which it certainly is referring to, but also to walk with him, to live like him, to look like him. This is our identity. We are now known as those Jesus has sacrificed for. We are known as children of the light. And if we are going to walk with him, we then must also live with consistency. Know your identity and then live with consistency. In verses 6 through 8, Paul says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In verse 10, we did read of of being asleep, whether we are awake or asleep. That sleep was talking about death. This sleep is talking about just the impreparedness that people have at night. They are unprepared for the coming of the Lord because they are asleep. This is exactly what being drunk implies as well. That at night, people who live in the night are either sleeping or they're drunk. These are the two things that you do when you're up at two o'clock in the morning, right? You're not up at 2 o'clock in the morning reading scripture unless you just can't sleep. The vast majority of people in the world are up at 2 o'clock in the morning drinking. That's what they do. Now, I know that there are exceptions to the rule. Maybe you were up at 2 o'clock last night and you're just a little offended right now. Maybe you were drinking. So here's the deal. He's just talking in generalities and he's saying this is what people do at night. They either sleep or they're getting drunk. And the idea of being drunk here doesn't just mean literally drunk. It means that the effects of being drunk are upon those people. When you hear stories of people doing stupid things when they're drunk, you know why they do those things. They do those things because their inhibitions have been lowered to the point where they can no longer think of consequences in the future. All they're thinking about is what they're doing at that moment. And it leads them to do incredibly stupid things and foolish things. And Paul is saying exactly that about people who act as though the Lord is never going to come. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. I can live however I want to and there's no judgment coming or I'm sleepy and I'm unprepared for the coming of the Lord. Verse 7 explains why. They live at night. Their whole world is darkness. They live as though they are unprepared for the coming of the Lord. And because they're unprepared for the coming of the Lord, because they live in darkness, they don't live their life in light of the fact that Jesus is returning. They live either unprepared or doing stupid things, foolish things, and evil things. He says, you cannot be that way. If you are a child of the light, then you do the things that people do in the light. 
The vast majority of people, even if they are happy to go out at night and get drunk, know that they don't do that during the day. I said vast majority, not all of them, but the vast majority have to keep jobs. So they know they can't be drunk at jobs. And so they don't do it. Even people who live to party on the weekends know that they, they have things to do during the day. They've got to be awake. They've got to be alert. They've got to be able to go out and do things. And Paul says, you live during the day. So because we live during the day, because we are children of the light, we are not drunk and we are not in slumber, but rather we are awake and alert and sober-minded. We are able to think clearly of what is coming to us and what happens because we live with consistency. We are children of the light, so we live as children of the light. Listen, it, it might not be the most popular thing, but friends, you have to realize that you will be judged according to your works. It's just the way things work. You're judged according to your works. Revelation 20:13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Romans 2 says exactly the same thing. There are plenty of passages in the Old Testament, plenty of passages in the New Testament that say you will be judged according to what you have done. A fool says in his heart there is no God. He says that because he is a fool. If you claim to be a child of the light, you have to actually live as a child of the light. If you don't live as a child of the light, then you are a liar then you are a hypocrite. Then you are not doing what God has called you to do. Tom Schreiner puts it this way. This is helpful, I think. Not something that hasn't ever been said before. He's not breaking new molds here, but it's helpful. Judgment according to works is not merely an Old Testament theme, but is also prominent in the New Testament. Those who are in the Lamb's book of life have performed works warranting inclusion, while those who are punished are those who have pursued and practiced evil. And this is the important part. Such works are not the basis for being found in the book of life, but constitute the necessary evidence of belonging to God. You're not a child of the light because you do the things of the light. But if you have been born again by God, if you are a child of light, if he has given you grace and changed your life, if you confess to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you ought to live a life that is consistent with that. You will know the tree by its fruit. You cannot live inconsistently. If you are a child of the light, you must live as a child of the light to not walk as a child of the light is to not be a child of the light. If you believe in Jesus, you must live like he is indeed going to return. How do we then prepare? How do we live constantly and consistently with our identity? Well, we have the right clothes, which is an odd way of putting it. This is the way that the Bible seems to put it. Revelation 16, 15. Listen to how these words sort of key in to exactly what Paul is talking about here. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and seen exposed. That is, he is sitting there at home, even in the middle of the night, prepared and ready to go. The clothes don't just mean that we're staying up all night, but rather we are given over to the fact that we expect our Lord to return at any point in time. We have, as it were, 
our oil lamps lit and filled with all of the fuel that they're going to need to wait out the night. We expect that he will return. And while Paul switches the metaphor, it's not robes of righteousness that we are going to wear, but it's armor that befits an army. He goes into more detail about this armament in Ephesians 6, but we are to remember that last time when Jesus returned, he returned as one who conquers. He returned with the call of command. He returned as an archangel trumpeted a loud voice and the trumpet of God sounded next to him. He calls himself the Lamb of God when he comes the first time. But again, he is the lion who returns. And here we are dressed in battle armament. We are dressed like an army. But his army is not like the world. But instead it is dressed in faith and hope and love, this famous triad of Christian behavior in Paul's idea. And Paul writes of this often that we are to put on faith and love, faith that we believe God's word and do our best to live by it, that knowing that we might fail, nevertheless, we strive to do what God commands us to do because we believe in the word of God. We entrust our futures to the fact that everything we read in this book is true and that we have no other salvation except that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and has given us forgiveness. That is what faith and what trust look like. You have to trust that what God is saying is true. If Jesus Christ is not going to return, if God is not going to judge the world, then you ought to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die and there's nothing else. But for those who entrust themselves to the word, who truly believe, they listen to the word and they live by it. Secondly, there's love. Jesus died and we love him. We demonstrate our love for him, not just by singing praises to him, which is true and good, but by heeding his call and by doing his commands. And we love one another, not primarily focused on ourselves anymore, but acting in such a way that we bring the good news of the gospel to others when they fall, that we bear one another's burdens, that we weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We seek to restore them to the Lord. And lastly, we have hope. This great day of gloom for the world, we expect with every expectation to be our day of rejoicing. When Jesus returns to judge the world, we know that we will be safe because we're found in him. Because we have not just lived a life where we have said that we believe, but we've demonstrated our belief. Not just by doing what he commands, but by repenting when we don't. And entrusting that Jesus is compassionate and kind to forgive us. So we have hope. Not a loose, flimsy hope, but a certain hope in the future that cannot be shaken. We live like he is returning, and we seek his glory. But that joy is not just for us. Lastly, we also encourage the community. We encourage the community. We, we have to help one another in these things. Paul says that we need to encourage one another and build each other up. We understand how devastating, and we need to understand how devastating this judgment should be for us and would be for us if not for Jesus Christ. Every idle word that you have ever spoken, every little word that you've mentioned under your breath that barely passed your lips. So you spoke in such a way that you wanted to speak it, but you didn't want anyone to hear it because you knew how bad it was. Every evil thought that flitted through your brain, every wretched deed that you have ever done will be brought to account on that day. How will we escape? Are we just going to parade our good works? 
Friend, your works, even the best of them, are laced with self-righteousness, arrogance, importance, self-importance at that, self-indulgence. There won't be merits for you. Nothing but filthy rags. Well, hope that we have is only in Christ. We have only hope in Christ. Therefore, we need to encourage one another in the gospel. Because once we realize the great destruction that awaits our sin, we need to know of the one and continually be brought back to the one who will deliver us from our sin. So we need to encourage one another in the gospel. Just as he said at the end of chapter 4, notice the pattern here. Christ died for us, we will be with him, so encourage one another. So we encourage one another. We remind ourselves that Christ has died and he has been risen so that we might be with him and therefore we will escape judgment. Therefore, all the more reason for us to walk in the light because Christ has freed us from the darkness. We seek to strengthen one another in the faith so that we can help one another press on in this life. Listen, it is difficult and it is trying. And our world vies for our attention, our devotion, and it discourages us strongly from entrusting ourselves fully to the Lord. Friends, press forward in the faith. Do not listen to the world. Know for certainty that Jesus Christ is coming and he brings his recompense with him. Seek his kindness and he will give it. Seek his forgiveness and it is yours. Put your sin behind you and he will remove it from you as far as the east is from the west because he has died and he has risen again. And await his return and live like he's coming for it is sure to pass. Even as we've already read from the end of the book of Revelation today, the very last sentiment in the book of Revelation. So as we close, let us read from its opening verses. Verses 5 through 8 of the first chapter of Revelation. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty One. Let us pray. Father, help us to live rightly in the light of your Son's return. Let us not wander off, led away by the wiles of the world and the calling of so many distractions. Let us not fall asleep or become drunk, mindlessly wandering through the world without ever considering the coming of the great judge of the quick and the dead. Rather, we pray that you would keep us vigilant, alert, awake, sober-minded, living out the very identity that you have given to us in your Son. We pray these things in the light of your gospel for your glory and our good. Amen.